Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I have a very exciting episode right now with a ghost from my past, an old friend in Sam Mishad. And we also have Raymond Mishanitz. And Sam and Ray are the co-founders of Even Up Law. So you know that I like to talk about a lot of stuff that's new in the space. This isn't directly related to marketing, but it is absolutely important for the operations and one of everybody's favorite practice areas of personal injury. So Sam and Ray, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having us, Jan. It's great to, great to see you after so many years. Yeah. So uh, me and Sam's story actually starts back in university. We were both students at the Des Hotel faculty of management at McGill University. And I would probably say, I'm not sure if I remember the day, but I'm guessing it was cold over Cass Montreal day. <laughs> One or both of us was probably hung over and we were both on the executive of the McGill entrepreneurship division. All right, that but, sounds but, about right. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, and, uh, definitely hung over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, you know, interestingly enough, I think, you know, our uh, 19 or 21 or whatever ended up having versus ourselves are probably pretty proud of where we wound up. But I would love to hear the story for the listeners of how you wound up running a startup in the legal technology space from the start. What kind of uh, got you here? Yeah, for sure. So as you know, Jan, after uh, this hotel, uh, I, in a moment of, of youthful indiscretion, I decided to go to law school. <laughs> and so I, I did do that. And I graduated, ended up going, uh, practicing in, in big law and commercial litigation for some time in Toronto and Montreal. And really, this idea sort of arose when I was in law school, the idea of consumer litigation funding. It was largely undisturbed space whereby funders would be extending funding to consumers who are in need of financing while their lawsuits are, are going forward. And this sort of the idea sort of germinated in law school and we sort of carried it over the practice. And I, one of our co-founders, who is on the line, Rami, I tried to convince for about four to five years to do this consumer litigation financing idea, right? And it, what eventually convinced them was this paper written by Anthony Seabock showing the disproportionate returns that existing consumer litigation funders generate. So they charge between 100 plus percent interest on these funding arrangements that they put out. And he was really taken by this and brought Ray into the fold. And this story really resonated with Ray and sort of Ray sort of took things to the next level. And I'll maybe let Ray uh, give his origin story here. I think he would be give, give pretty good context. Yeah. So, hey, everybody, this is Ray. For context, yeah, I am not an attorney. I knew nothing about the law coming into this. Prior to this, I was in education and recruitment. Uh, this is my second rodeo, a second startup. And essentially... Yeah, when Rami, uh, we were sitting in Dolores, if those familiar in of San Francisco, Dolores Park, we were sitting in Dolores having a picnic and, and Rami just brought up, hey, do you know uh, what litigation finance is? My friend Sam is thinking of getting some friends to pull some money together where we can invest in lawsuits together and also help people at the same time. And when I heard that story, I was like, okay, so how does litigation finance work? And this was really interesting to me because back in 2004, my dad was actually involved in a catastrophic motor vehicle accident, and that rendered him permanently disabled for the rest of his life. So for the next 
three to four years, we were actually in court fighting against the big insurance carrier, trying to get a fair settlement, while my mom was working three jobs at a time just to put food on the table. We didn't have any access to financing to kind of get us by. So this was actually really interesting. This is something that could have felt like it really could have helped us uh, during those times. In addition to that, my dad ended up seeing that my mom was working so hard, he took a low ball settlement offer by the insurance carrier. Sam is probably more familiar with this uh, as he was on the, the, the dark side, if you will. But insurance carriers don't necessarily present the best offers early on in the case and the typically lowball plaintiffs who are financially strapped like my family was. So my dad ended up taking a 600K settlement for two immigrant parents. This was more money that they've ever earned in their entire life. They've never seen anything more than this. Little did they know that they could be settling more where six months later, a secondary victim in the case who was not directly impacted by the driver that hit my father, but was hit by a piece of my dad's vehicle, he settled for around $1.5 million. We know this because this guy was a local guy. He spoke with us uh, as he was kind of going through his case. And then my dad realized how, basically, how much we've lost from not basically going the extra mile with, with these, you know, our attorney and, and the insurance carrier. So from that, we walked away with less. And, you know, we were just thinking, had we had a better attorney, had better representation, who actually kind of better understood what that case was worth, had we had better representation, maybe my parents would have known that they could have stuck it out and earned a larger settlement through this. And that's kind of what made me so fascinated about what we're doing today. One thing I just want to quickly add is that 600K might sound like a lot of money, but keep in mind that usually a third of that minimum goes to the attorney. And then there's a huge chunk of that that goes to pay off medical fees and liens and what have you. So the what actually went into his parents' pocket is somewhere between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars. And if, if you want to think about the value of an, of, a, of the working life of a person, that is only a, a fraction of that. And so, obviously, this is a situation that is widespread in America. And as as Ray mentioned, there are really two governing factors. First is lack of access to capital for the plaintiff. So. There is no financial runway for them to get from incident to payout. And number two is, I don't mean harsh. I don't think it's, it's bad representation. It's just that the, the plaintiff bar does not have the same toolkits as defense does. They don't right. have as many people working for them. They don't have access to experts. They don't have access to, they don't have the benefit of having as much time. They're often constrained by their own cash flows. So it's just a much more difficult practice to work up all of your cases the same way that the defense can. Yeah. And it's actually, I mean, we have a pretty interesting market too. And this is the thing. It's like, um, whenever I'm talking with civilians, everyone's, oh yeah, personal injury attorneys, you work with those guys, you know, ambulance changers, blah, blah, blah. But like, you know, the whole story that you just mentioned, Ray, just kind of realizes the human side of these things in a way that I honestly don't think gets discussed on even legal podcasts that much. I really think the work of a good personal injury attorney is Robin Hood stuff, right? You're fighting on behalf of the little guy for some wrong that's befallen them. And when it plays off, it's fantastic. But 
you know, there's the real factors too, you know, and it's like, you know, what the, the attorney had the ability to do. And, you know, maybe it was his first rodeo or the pressure from the actual plaintiff to settle can sometimes be more than people can overcome. So from the perspective of the people who might be launching PI practices, it's really interesting too, because it's like, you know, it's, it's obviously easy to look at your competition or look at your, you know, your own website sometimes and see those, whatever, 5 million recovered, 7 million recovered, 11 million recovered. But you know, the reality is those giant settlements aren't the kind of things that get settled with a demand letter in two months, you know, and sometimes the ones that are particularly grievous, uh, you don't really think about the human factor of this. So you know, just to, to kind of educate myself on this, from what you guys see, like what's the kind of, I guess, market penetration of people who have access to this in terms of, you know, the overall personal injury world, because, you know, we've worked with quite a few personal injury firms as far as the marketing side, but um, this is, I've never actually discussed this with any clients I've ever had. Yeah. So I think, so just going back on, on, on what we do, right. We, we sort of build this technology that powers two different products. One is this consumer litigation financing product at hyper low rates. And the second is this idea of software that helps attorneys generate demand packages and to build up the value of their cases to damage assessments. Uh, the first prompt, the consumer litigation funding market has been around for about 20 years. There is a begrudging use of it. And that hesitance to use it is derived primarily from the extremely high rates that are pervasive in the market. So I recommend everyone to, to look at the, the CBOC study, but Basically, the, the average rate is around 100%. And so attorneys have a very difficult time recommending consumer litigation funding to the clients in good conscience for a couple of reasons. Number one is it leads to settlement distortions. So if you get $1,000 of funding and then it turns into $5,000 by the end of it and you, you're settling for $15,000, the client might not sign the dotted line if they're only getting like a net recovery of, of two to three K. The other issue is that oftentimes clients get this money and they forget they ever had it. And so it becomes a difficult conversation to have at the end of the case. And finally, it's just the rates are really high relative to the underlying risk. So there is just this overarching sense of unfairness. That being said, this is a necessity for many, many clients. And so there is no official market study around this issue, but there is, we, we estimate that there is between, you know, 700 billion dollars of funding that's circulating every year. But I mean, if you look at the general PI practice, there's about a hundred billion dollars worth of settlements in most types of PI cases, excluding mass torts. And if you look at the average distribution of wealth in America, there's 40% of folks that live paycheck to paycheck. So if there is any kind of income disruption event, then those people will presumably need some funding to carry them over to the finish line. And so that represents in rough numbers about a 40% a $40 billion market, right? And we're not there yet. And the reason why we're not there yet is because this industry is still in its nascent stages because of the taboo around the higher rates and the funders and so on and so forth. And I think our idea is that this can be changed. Consumer litigation funding can be made more palatable if the rates are more transparent, the rates are lower, and that there is just better operating relationship between law firms and funders. To add on to Sam's point about the 100% average interest rate, so there's a large amount of these funders offering this funding at extremely predatory rates. 
And where the lack of transparency comes from is the fact that people don't understand what interest rates actually mean. As you guys might know that six out of 10 Americans don't have more than $500 in savings. This is a huge financial literacy problem in the United States. And the fact that they're being quoted these interest rates and not actually understanding the impact to them at the end of their case is, is a huge problem that we're trying to solve. So with every client that we deal with, we have, of course, take the time to educate them on, you know, what is the actual dollar amount that they would be owing at the end of their case. But just to kind of double click on like what we're trying to do here, the idea motivating the funding side of our business is that can we build and use technology to better understand the value of these cases and underwrite them more effectively and pass those savings to the end consumer? What we're trying to do is use this technology to offer clients this same type of funding at credit card rates, where for those listening who don't really know much about consumer litigation finance, this funding is non-recourse in nature. And what that means is you only pay this back if you win. So what we're trying to do is create an option for clients where if you were to choose between taking on credit card debt or non-recourse funding at credit card rates, it would be a no-brainer to use even up for your case. Okay, that's awesome. I think that also makes a lot of sense too, because it's, yeah, it's been something that I've always been like peripherally aware of, but a lot of these funding options too, it's just like, I bet, you know, the, the people there's, there's obviously better and worse people to take your money from at the end of the day. <laughs> and if, you know, if it's money with certain conditions, you know, I could probably get a loan for 10 grand right now. I might not have my kneecaps in a couple of weeks, but you know, <laughs> there's, always, there's always operations, you know, there's always considerations to take in mind. Okay. So switching over to like the stuff that you guys are doing around maximizing case value. I think that's super interesting. And I've only had a little bit on purpose, a very uh, low amount of discovery on this with you guys. So I really want to hear a little bit more about what you guys are doing to help people not only get to the point where you have the payout, but ultimately make that payout be something that's bigger than it would be otherwise. Yeah. So to give you more context, I'll, let me just walk you through sort of my background and, and how I would approach uh, PI defense. Yeah. So I would typically do a lot of very serious cases so wrongful death cases and serious dismemberment cases. And really on the defense side, the first thing you do when you get a case like that is to assess exposure. You want to report to the carrier what is the value of this case and what is the exposure of the firm. And they need to do this exercise for accounting purposes. They want to know how much cash they need to set aside for their outstanding claims. And to do so, you will look at historic cases that the carrier had, or you will do a verdict analysis for the pain and suffering damages. And you'll also do an economic analysis for things like lost wages, future medical costs, and past medical costs. And you'll look at things like loss of services and so on and so forth. Now, this analysis, it becomes pivotal in governing the defense's theory of the case and operating strategy. But plaintiffs don't have the entrenched ability to do so for most cases. So what we do when we step into, into law firms is help them build up the value of their cases earlier. And what that means practically is that they give us the information that they have, their medical records, their medical bills, 
lean information, policy information, the, the inputs that they get from the client with respect to how the incident occurred and so on and so forth. And we build up those facts into a demand package that becomes really, really well presented, well organized, and builds up elements of loss that would otherwise not be claimed like lost wages, lost future medicals, lost household services. And we also reference verdicts for things like pain and suffering or loss of consortium as well. And the net difference is huge, right? There's In one scenario, you're getting a demand package with a two-page demand package saying, this is what happened. Liability is clear. Here are the list of procedures. Give me your, your policy limit. And then the second case, you have demand package that clearly has built up the thesis of that piece of litigation to come, right? You have a clear exposition of facts, a clear exposition of liability. You have a detailed medical narrative. You have a detailed theory of what your damages should be by element of loss with supporting documentation, with supporting computation, and with supporting verdicts. And so that forces the claim adjuster and it forces opposing counsel, if applicable, to treat that claim very, very differently. And the promise of EvenUp is to be able to deliver this product at scale and at an affordable rate. So we're basically trying to give the plaintiff counsel the same capacity as defense has in a scalable and cost-efficient way. And yeah. we can do this for with, with a variety of uh, techniques that we can discuss a little bit later, but we have a, a tech stack that allows us to do this at scale. Yeah. Well, now actually the brand name makes a lot more sense because basically, yeah, it's like, you know, the people that you're up against are hiring, you know, the top talent from the top universities and colleges in the country. And if you're the person who just, you know, this might be the first personal injury case here, or even if you're a smaller, you know, even a couple person firm, it's like, you don't have that army of, you know, brilliant L3s to, <laughs> to carry this whole workout uh, workload for yeah. you. But um, yeah, let's get into that too, though. So as far as the actual tech stack, like um, how are we kind of like getting all these references and stuff, right? Because I think, let me actually ask you this. What does the process look like without technology to be able to deliver something like this? Like what would it look like to if you had to just use um, human bodies to solve this problem? Sure. I'll just give you a sense of how most firms solve this issue. So there's, I just want to be mindful of, of the stages of litigation. There's, there's the pre-litigation practice. And then there's the practice while in litigation. Pre-litigation with most of the firms that we dealt with, it's typically a case manager who will take care of it. You know, what that means practically is that they'll take care of intake. They will follow up with the client to make sure that they're going to their treatments. They will retrieve the medical records. Once they have all the records, they will write the demand package. They will send it out. They will negotiate the outcome with the insurance carrier and then they'll settle the liens, okay? And most of this is done by a case manager, okay? With some oversight by the attorney. And you can think of it, uh, there's an inverse correlation between how involved the attorney is versus how many cases the attorney has, right? So the more cases the attorney has, the more of this process is handled by a case manager. And, and really case managers are the unsung heroes in the pre-lit practice. They handle a lot dealing with clients that day in, day out is not an easy task, but it's all a manual process that's primarily driven by a case manager. And if they have a lot of clients, they're really being pushed to produce as many demand packages as, as they can to meet the demand. 
And sometimes that creates a lot of strain on what they can do on a per case basis. So they actually have to physically read through the medical records, read through the bills, synthesize them, add them up, put some pros around it, put them into the band package, add some additional flourish, and then send it off. So it's a tedious manual process that is often done by non-attorneys. Okay, gotcha. So basically, I think that the promise here too, it's it's almost like a different situation for different firms because you know that all kind of sounds like overhead to me if I'm thinking about like the big firm who's got 50 of these guys. And if you want to get a better job, like you have to do some sort of a cost benefit analysis to how many people you want to have on payroll versus what the outcome right. is going to be increased. So it's kind of like talk about that too. So it's like, but it's interesting because in some levels for those larger firms, it's kind of leverage. But for the smaller firms or the solos, even it's like this might be a capability. Like I'm sure there's a bunch of cases working on right now where the, the attorney who's doing everything else is also the case manager, right? Exactly. That's that's absolutely right. So if there is no case manager, the attorney has to run this end to end. And so solo practitioners or, or attorneys that have they work in small offices will often be in these overage situations, right? If they have a few depositions lined up this week and they need to send out a few demands, demands take the back burner. It's very difficult to service them in time. It's very easy not to have enough time. And so where we step in is we give them that overage capacity. So if you are an advocate and you want to be an advocate, we allow you to be an advocate by doing this paper pushing work in a high quality fashion, in a scalable fashion. So we help a lot of solo practitioners who are either starting out or who have a growing practice to service the demands as they come. And what we've noticed is that as soon as someone uses us a little bit, they tend never to leave <laughs> because basically we're much cheaper than a case manager or paralegal. We're always gonna be there when they need additional help. It doesn't represent uh, necessarily a fixed cost to them. So it's like having uh, a really, really good junior associate slash expert on call at all times. And so it, it makes a lot of sense to keep us around. And moreover, it's even good to have us around to almost get a second opinion on how much you think your case is worth, right? Sometimes sometimes we get cases and the attorney tells us he thinks it's worth 300, 400, $500,000. And we come back with a demand package for $1.8 million. And we had one case recently where they, they settled for two times what the attorney thought the case was worth because in the, the demand package, well, in this case, it was a mediation brief, but we built in the economic loss computations. We actually produced the model, put it in there. We produced a model for loss of household services, and that significantly increased the potential value of the case. And it was presented in a, in a manner that had a lot of credence and opposing counsel had to deal with it, and he ended up paying out half of what we wanted or what we asked for, but it was still 2x what we thought it was worth, what, what the attorney thought it was worth. So that's really the dynamics between us and, and smaller firms. Yeah. And, and for the uh, revenue-minded listeners around it, I think that's a very tangible thing to think about too. It's like, you know, personal injury is one of those interesting sp uh, spaces where, you know, your customer lifetime value is dependent on so many outside factors. But you know, just talking about the dry numbers, you know, Shark Tank perspective, if you can double your customer value, what does that do for the possibilities for your marketing and scaling the firm? I'm sure that person's having a much different year than they thought of for the size of that settlement, right? 
Oh yeah, for sure. It, the way we look at it, 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 it's so easy to pay for our services with one case a year. If you do exceedingly well, you've paid for our services for a, a couple of years to come, sort of thing. You know, and one thing I also wanted to mention was around how we work with law firms, right? So you can have one lawyer with one case manager, and we can just work with the case manager. We just we just need the documents to produce these outputs. So we don't even bother the attorney. We, we just get the documents from the case manager and turn around these, these demands on a going basis that the attorney can review and send out. And so we really intersperse ourselves in the practice of smaller firms. And we basically turbocharge their pre-litigation practice and, off, and certain pieces of their litigation practice as well. And you know, ultimately, the comments we've gotten are, are around, you know, these demand packages that that I can produce with your help, I'm proud to present them to my client to say, this is the representation that I'm making on your behalf. I'm proud to present them to the claim adjuster because I know that the reputation I'll be building with the claim adjuster is, is that of a, an attorney that is attentive and detailed that will build up case value at the pre-litigation stage. And it just makes them seem a lot better and more confident and, and more assertive in their personal injury practice. Yeah. It's kind of interesting too, to kind of watch some people's brand trajectories over the years too. It's like, you know, winning those absolute dinger cases makes the, the insurance people start recognizing your name after a couple of years too. And if you're coming correct on all these things too, there's probably a, a, an effect that's really hard to measure about just the reputation associated with your name, but also to clients too, just thinking about it. It's like, it's such a common practice in the personal injury space to just have those big numbers listed on the website, but it's just like the, if they can get bigger and more frequent, like that's also huge for the reputation within the market too. And it's like just one of those things, like not to even mention stuff like the referrals that could be possible as far as these improved outcomes. And then, you know, not even the bad outcomes that people are avoiding, right? It's like, you know, who among us hasn't taken a client when they were a little bit overstretched, but funny. <laughs> those, those are the situations to leave those two star reviews on Google, man. That's not something you want to be getting into either. Yeah, so absolutely. I think it's absolutely um, critical for the small firms too. And like, I got to say too, like, there's one thing that I've thought about a lot and it's just like um, some people who have, and I actually, I mentioned this on a podcast that I was on the other day with Kara Vival, who I absolutely have to introduce you to. But basically, <laughs> I was talking about how we used to evaluate people from what I had our sales team do and we're evaluating personal injury firms. I said, you know, basically, there's kind of two, two types. There's the personal injury firm and there's the aspirational personal injury firm. And from what we were doing at the time, which was Google AdWords, it's very hard to get an aspirational personal injury firm to <laughs> pay five or 10 grand a month plus fees for uh, getting a campaign running. But absolutely, there's people who need to make that transition. And it's such a hard thing to do because you know you have to assume that person has other practice areas. So I think just as far as anyone who happens to be in this position right now, you know, you usually think about, and especially the marketing minded among us, think about how to get the case before how to solve the case. And I think you guys fill such an important gap for people who are at that stage. But to kind of turn it around a little bit, let's talk about some of the bigger firms you guys are working with. And I know I'm not going to name any names, but I know you guys have uh, partnered up with some of the bigger firms in the space. So what do these deployments look like in those larger firms? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And we, we primarily work with the larger firms on questions of, of consumer litigation funding. We started working more with them on the overage cases, right? Even if you have a giant firm with tens to hundreds of paralegals and case managers, oftentimes your people will be overworked and you want them 100% for certain cases at the pre-lit stage, right? And 
that's where we step in. So there's a particular attorney case managers that is overworked. They need help with a with a case that is either really really high value or really really simple, but it's time consuming from a from a records perspective. We step in and we help them out. But I, I do want to just go back on a previous point you made around the art the trajectory of of a of a PI practitioner. What we've noted as well, it's very similar to to what you mentioned. You know, you have a, you have a personal injury uh, attorney that starts off starts taking smaller cases, and then they just graduate into these larger cases to the exclusion of the smaller like state minimum policy cases or 50,000 policy limit cases. The reason why they do that is because they don't have time anymore. I mean, the, the value of their time is optimized by them focusing on these, on these larger cases. And what we've noticed is if we step in and we help you really streamline that pre-lit practice, you can keep those smaller cases because they're, they're still somewhat simple and grow your practice in the higher value arena. And so it's basically free money, right? If we can pump out herniated discs for you through MVAs with clear liability, we could turn around 10 or 20 a month with minimum oversight from you. I mean, you have to read the demand package, make sure that the documents are in order and then send it out. That's that's less than an hour's time, right? You can generate consistently three to six to $12,000 per case with very, very little work, knowing that it's being taken care of by someone else. Yeah. I mean, to connect to that too, this is also a huge question that I used to ask whenever I'm, I mean, it's been a long time since we've been focused on personal injury, but one of the questions I'd always ask on calls is like, you know, you, you guys are out there catching fish. What case is too small? What do you throw back into the ocean? And the reality is, Great you know, question. even those cases that are smaller than that, like, you know, I, I know some really big firms that are happy to take on a $15,000 case because yeah some people have figured out a process to get that settled. And those are usually the ones that settle quickly. And it's a great way to, as we'd refer to in the marketing world, liquidate ad spend, right? <laughs> Obviously, you know, you'd love to be taking the seven and eight figure cases all day, but you know, those smaller cases, if, if it's not taking time away from getting the bigger cases are going to keep your ad spend. It's going to keep the lights on from a lot of the marketing stuff. So it really does empower a lot of options for people that are in that transitional space. Yeah, I mean, I think what really attracted us to this space, I mean, we're honestly much more interested in smaller cases than the, than the big ones. Mm-hmm. The big ones represent a lot more, I mean, just our unit economics don't work as well for the larger cases, but there has been no innovative solution that has been built to service these smaller cases. And most people, no matter how serious their injury, will be subject to either a state minimum policy or you know a 50K to 100K policy. So how do you deal with those cases in the most efficient manner, providing the most service to the client and maximizing their outcome without forcing them to get like seven epidural shots to try to inflate the value of the case? So that's really where we step in and try to maximize value through advocacy, through good written work, through reliance on data, both verdicts and computations. And I think it's made a very big difference. Yeah. And it's actually kind of funny too. Like, I don't know if it was just the way that we introed this, but you're actually bringing me back to some of the textbook stuff that they talked about in entrepreneurship class, Miguel, the disruption model, right? <laughs> it's not about a lot of cases about innovating at the top of the market. It's the part of the market that other people are not paying attention to. So, I mean, it's cool that you guys are focusing on this, but in the same token, you know, not to be too ambitious or extrapolate too much, but people who want to pursue this can jump on this road and become the firm that's helping out with those in their market. So I think it's really exciting, honestly. And as far as like, you know, any kind of parting comments, but if not, like what's the best way to get in touch with you guys? 
Sure. Uh, you, you can reach out to, to us at, at hello at evenuplaw.com. Uh, so H-E-L-L-O at evenup, E-V-E-N-U-P law.com. Or you can just visit our website at evenuplaw.com. Uh, that's sort of our software slash servicing product for personal injury attorneys. Our consumer litigation funding product is on uh, evenupcash.com. Okay. Awesome guys. So once again, to the audience, I think I've, you know, you know, I love taking innovative products onto the show. I think this is really a fantastic opportunity and I'm not BSing when I say that it is an opportunity when people are able to do this, because if this is something that your competition isn't focusing on, this is something that you can be focusing on. And that's one way to do it. But also look, I think for a lot of the smaller and transitional personal injury practices, this is not bandwidth that you can afford to lose. Again, thanks for coming on the show, guys. Thanks for creating this platform in the first place. And for everyone else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.